Welcome to the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton-Rossini. Join us here every Saturday night at 8 p.m. or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Podserve, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first. Dexter Cox is very lucky to have had an exciting career that allowed him to take flight. Well, now he takes us on quite a ride with his book, Dancing with the Devil. Well, my career, whole career was in the aviation industry. I was a professional pilot for years and years and years. And, uh, and then I got into management sides of the business and uh, aircraft sales and special projects and certification of new equipment and stuff of that nature. And Dancing with the Devil was inspired by what you did for a living. That's it. And basically, the you know, where I got the name of the book was at one point in time, the FAA came to me and said, Dexter, in the, in the, in the past eight months, you've had more engine failures and equipment malfunctions than all of the rest of the pilots in the Western region combined. What's going on? And, uh, you know, said, I explained and they said, well, we think you're dancing with the devil. We're afraid you're going to get hurt. And that's where I got the name of the book from. Well, why, why was that? Why was it? Well, it was the nature of the business I was in. I was in the used aircraft sales business, and that's one of the reasons. But that's not entirely uh, because I had, uh, you know, eight engine years before I ever got associated with the, uh, uh, with the aircraft sales business. But. I was had the dubious distinction of having had more engine failures than probably any other pilot history. I had 28, 28 engine failures in my career. Well, what I find interesting is that you live to tell about it. I mean, what do you do when your engine <laughs> fails? <laughs> well, seven, seven of them were in single-engine airplanes. And of course, you land. <laughs> just you uh, land. Just, you, you remain calm, and you just look. What if, what if there's nowhere to land? Well, that's it. The, the, the key you said you said it in a, in a in a single word: remain calm. And uh, the, the reason you could remain calm if you're a professional pilot is if you have taught yourself everything there is to know about the airplane that you're in and all the systems therein and how they work together and and, and what happens if one of them goes wrong. What else does it affect? You know that sort of thing. So. Uh, if, it, those are the things that uh, that happen. But then you get into other situations that are you know, not don't re, aren't necessarily caused by uh, uh, an engine failure, but by an equipment malfunction or uh, some sort of a of a mistake by an individual that generates a problem, and uh, and you have to deal with those things as well. I can't even imagine. It scares me. To, all I think about is when John F. Kennedy crashed his plane. Right. And he didn't, they think he didn't know his instruments well enough, so he didn't know whether he was upside down or right side up when he was flying. That is correct. It's called spatial disorientation. Very common? It, it is common in pilots who are not trained for it. It's a, it, it's a nasty thing that, to take place because the problem is your inner ear. Okay. Uh, in your inner ear, there's these little filaments in there that move back and forth in the fluid in your inner ear and tell you whether you're right side up, going left, going right, or what have you. So if you give you an example, you're flying straight and level, and the little ears are not disturbed. They're just neutral. And then you decide you're going to turn to the right. So you start a right turn. Mm-hmm. When you do, 
the fluid changes, moves a little bit, which twists those little ears, uh, those little filaments in there, and tells your body you're going this direction. Okay. Problem is, problem is, if you stay in that right turn for any length of time, the little uh, filaments turn, you know, move back to neutral. And now, as far as the little filaments are concerned, you're flying straight and level. Okay, but you're still on the right turn. Oh my! Now then, if you level the airplane out to level flight, the, your little the little filaments tell your your body, oh, you're now turning to the left. So you turn back to the right. So what you've just done is you just increased the right turn more. Oh. And uh, those, so that's and that's how people get into trouble. Yeah, and it's only experience, right, can can help you. It's it's training. Training and experience. So this book is your memoir. That's it. And it starts from when I was uh, two and a half years old and uh, and goes up until the time that, uh, you know, I basically uh, retired and, uh, and things that happened that caused me to retire. And I can't cover all of the things that happened to me because as it is, it's a 500 page book. And if, if I went to uh, try to cover everything that happened to me, it would be twice or three times that thick. But uh, I, I deal with probably, I'd say, 12 of the engine failures uh, in the book. And I deal with uh, four major, what, what to me were four major life-threatening situations that I was in, none of which were, were really an engine failure. Even though I did have one engine failure in a single-engine airplane in the middle of the night, that was a little, uh, you know, got my attention. Wow. Uh, because landing in the middle of the night without the, out in the middle of nowhere is so you don't have no have any idea where you come down in unless you're very familiar with the territory. But anyhow, uh, I had an experience that got got inadvertently got into airframe icing, which is very very dangerous in airplanes, and in a small airplane it doesn't have the icing equipment in particular. Oh, and and then I got into a situation uh, uh, where I had a uh, so-called captain of, of a large airplane uh, that, that was sent to me to be the captain, and I was just new to this airplane completely. I was just barely able to uh, you know, do some basic rudimentary things that a co-pilot would do in the airplane. And this guy that was sent to me, supposedly as an experienced captain, was abs- actually had been retired because he his, his uh, company retired him because his capabilities were degrading seriously he was 67 years old and um, he just about got us into a situation that nearly killed us uh, we were very lucky to uh, to get out of that this was a uh, four engine uh, Vickers Viscount but it was not a commercial it was strictly business aircraft okay but you had passengers uh, on board yes oh. uh, as a matter, matter of fact uh, this was a sales demonstration uh, we were trying to sell the airplane to Country Charlie Pride. I don't know if you know. Who oh he is my or goodness, not. no! Yeah, but he was a singer, and uh, we had his band on board, and we were going from uh, uh, Van Nuys, California. We left Van Nuys at about two, around two ten in the morning, uh, headed for Las Vegas when this incident occurred. Fortunately, uh, Charlie Pride and his band were in the back playing poker. And uh, never knew anything that ha- that happened to us because it was you know in the middle of the night and they we had the cockpit door closed so they couldn't see what was going on in the cockpit and they didn't see all of the fact going on outside you know that 
trees that were higher than we were and that sort of thing. And we, we were 10 miles out over the ocean before we finally solved the problem this guy created. Oh, my God. And got the airplane carried away. But anyway, you know, that sort of thing. Not Nothing wrong with the airplane at all. It was a individual person-generated, manufactured problem. And uh, because I was very new to the airplane, all I could do was try to fly the airplane initially until we got out over the ocean and got into what's very stable air called ground effect. And then I helped, uh, you know, analyze the problem and solve it. And that was one of the issues. And then I had to deal with uh, a Learjet 25 delivering to Argentina for the first air, uh, Learjet ever to go into Argentina. And uh, the, the owners down there, uh, you, you, you deal with the third world mentality. And the guy who bought the airplane was a, bona fide german count uh from the bloodline and his family his name was Thiessen, federico augusto Thiessen, and from the Thiessen industrial group in germany very very huge manufacturing company over there but during world war ii his father in 1942 uprooted his family and and, and moved to argentina but anyway still that 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 um, you know, German count that royal background and all of that and uh, being rich besides and and in a third world country, the guy basically got whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, and everybody kind of tied to him, did what he told him to do. And uh, he had got a pilot from that was flying for Ariel Linus Argentinus and Boeing 737, so it was going to be his, his uh, pilot, and I was going to have to train them. And uh, in the process of this, we would took a business trip during this training period and basically he had his pilot lie to me about what the weather was my spanish at the time was muy poquito so they were speaking spanish back and forth to the controllers very quickly and very fast so i couldn't keep up with what they were always busy flying the airplane and they lied to me about the weather uh in in uh, we were going into an airport in northwestern argentina called Bujuy. And it's in a valley in the mountains, uh, in the uh, uh, eastern side of the uh, Andes Mountains, and the you know and it was in the foothills, and it was still it was very dangerous. And we you know came with, and we we landed with about three or four minutes of fuel remaining because of all of the issues I had to put up with to try to find the airport that they lied to me about because they you know there was no non-precision approach and all that. Oh my That's gosh. a long story. Anyway, that's all dealt with in book that type of stuff. As well as, you know, what what I think about things. I, it deals with my time in the military, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I did things that you don't normally do. You know, they tell you when you get drafted, you know, you can't take your car, you can't take your motorcycle, you can't take your bicycle, you can't even bring your roller skates, you know. <laughs> You're in the military now. Right. You've been drafted. You do what we tell you to do. Well, they didn't say you couldn't bring your airplane, so I brought my airplane to basic training, which was a big number. Oh, my. Where did you land it? Well, uh, it, it, I was from my basic training. I was drafted in in uh, you know, the Denver uh, induction center in Denver, Colorado. Okay. And the basic training was in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. But Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri had a joint use military uh, and civilian airport. Uh. So you could, you could get into that airport simply by filing a flight plan. <laughs> Uh, and if the airport military wasn't uh, doing anything serious, they would let them civilian aircraft in and out of the airport <laughs> there. So anyway, that's how I got it. Anyway, it's a long story, but it's all in the book, you know. Wow. That sounds exciting. It sounds like you were near death uh, more than once. 
More than once. More than yeah. once. Good for you. And and he lives to tell the tale. Dexter Cox. Where do you like do you do you tell your stories anywhere? Do you do people know that you wrote this book? Well, I just started getting it out. You know, I, I it was first published uh, I got my first books in, in early March. And I've started doing things. As a matter of fact, we have a large book signing event here in uh, in Green Valley. Great. Uh, you know, I am out trying to get it. I've talked to a lot of people now, friends of mine, uh, you know, associates in the aviation. So the word is beginning to get out in the aviation business. You know, and I did have it shown at the uh, at the London Book Festival, which was just just completed recently. Uh, I've had two inquiries so far from people who attended. It's nice. also going to be shown at the um, the Librarian Annual Convention in Chicago, I think, in June. And there's like twenty five to 30,000 librarian, U.S. librarians attend that convention. Oh, right. So, yes, I do know about that. Okay. Okay. You'll get a copy of this interview. And uh, feel free to use it on your social media, whatever you want to do with it. I'll be happy to. I'm never going to fly again now. <laughs> well, you know, the, the funny thing is, is that... Uh, one of the one of the things I relate in the in, in the book is, uh, you know, I was on a charter trip out of Casper, Wyoming, which is where I grew up and where I started flying, and um, I was taking a gentleman to Kansas City, Missouri. It was a lovely spring day, and we were in a Cessna 210. Air was perfectly smooth, just like glass, and we're flying along, and the guy's looking outside, and he turned to me finally, he says, "You know," he says, "I don't believe this." I said, "What's that?" He says. This, anybody could do this. I mean, we're sitting here. He said, I, I can't believe they're paying you or I'm paying you to do this. I uh. says, well, he, he said, well, he said, you, you ought to be paying me. And I said, well, let, let's look at it this way. I said, uh, if we had a $500 an hour problem, would you rather have a $50 an hour pilot? <laughs> <laughs> there you go, Dexter. <laughs> yeah. He, he, he didn't ask any more questions. I, I bet he didn't, man. So you're on your way. It's just a question of how long it's going to take to recover my costs. <laughs> right, right. Well, that's, you know, if you can at least do that much, you know. If I can do that much, I'll be happy as a client. William J. Voller Jr. had the scare of his life, and he shares his story in his book, Prostate Cancer and How It Changed Me. Bill, I'm just curious, what did you do for a living? I uh, worked for uh, 39 years for a uh, utility in Chicago, uh, and uh, I live in the suburbs of Chicago, but I worked for this utility ever since college. So I worked for one company all, all the time until I retired. When did you find out you had prostate cancer? Well, I, had, I discovered I had prostate cancer when I turned 50. I went in for a physical, and I had lost about 27 pounds. I was real proud of myself. I started a running exercise program. Uh, I, I, I lost all this weight, and uh, my, my blood pressure was go down. It was in the normal range, and my weight was good. I promised my wife when I turned 50 that she would have the man back that she married. You know, right? so, so here is, I'm going to turn 50, and I'm going to do this. And I go in for, the, for the, my physical, and the doctor's praising me. Great job, Bill. I don't know how you do this. Wow, I wish all my patients did that. And then he, then he called me. I'm sitting in my office on Monday morning. And he called me at uh, 7 o'clock in the morning. And it's very unusual to get a call from your doctor unless something wrong is happening. And sure enough, uh, I, he called me and he said, nah, everything's great, but, you know, I've got a little problem with uh, something called a PSA. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, I didn't tell you, but we start taking tests of people for prostate cancer at the age of 50. 
and and really that's all I needed to hear. My ears just started ringing, and 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 I said, "So you're telling me I have prostate cancer?" And he goes, "Well, well, well, don't jump to any conclusions. There's there's a lot of false positives here. So why don't you just go and uh, we'll schedule another test in two weeks?" And uh, I went to the hospital again, took my uh, second prostate uh, test, and sure enough, and it turned out to be. Uh, just as high as the first one did. Oh. So I had a I had a PSA count of 8.0, oh. and anything above four is considered dangerous. So a lot of men have prostate issues, and it, if it's you know one or less than one to 4.0, nobody really is concerned about it. They're monitoring it, but it's not. They don't they don't feel it's 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 worthy of a PSA test or cancerous or anything like that. But once it gets above four, then they they do all the testing and, and biopsies. So that was my next phase. Uh, after that, I, I had a biopsy and the biopsy confirmed the cancer. Oh, boy. And uh, after that, uh, uh, I went in for the operation and I had my total my total prostate was removed, which, I, you know, I felt great. Here I am, 50 years old, and I've got my prostate removed, and good cancer is gone, and I felt, wow, everything's fine. And, uh, and, and they, they're very concerned about it, so they wanted me to come in and take uh, tests, prostate PSA tests, every six months, uh, which I did for about three years, and all of a sudden I got a hit, a positive hit. What? And I, I, and I turned to the doctor, and I said, how can this be? And he goes, well, so every once in a while... Now, first of all, he said, could be a false positive. Let's take another test. But he did say every once in a while we have uh, cells, individual cancer cells that are shocked by the operation, and they go dormant. And all of a sudden, they're waking up after a number of years, and they could cause issues. Oh. So that's what happened to me. I had my prost- I was identified with prostate cancer uh, in December, in January of uh, 2003, and I had my prostate removed in August of 2003, and then three years later, I uh, was was uh, my prostate came back, a cancer came back, and I had uh, small small numbers, you know, 1.1, 0.2, but it was going up every t- time I took a PSA test it would go up another couple of numbers. So they decided to give me seven weeks of radiation. So just before Thanksgiving of 2006, I went in for seven weeks of radiation, Monday through Thursday, and, you know, they put you in the radiation tube, and, you know, you're in there for 35, 40 minutes, and Oh my gosh! How does that affect your 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 psyche, your your mental? Well, stability? honestly, I, I was working so hard that it, it was great because I, I took a nap every afternoon. I, I fell asleep every afternoon, and I was the last uh, client that the this uh, radiation uh, area had. So I, I came in at four o'clock, and I they gave me the radiation, and I just drove home. And uh, I didn't have any ill effects for about three weeks. And then all, all of a sudden, my doctor kept on telling me, he says, now, what's going to happen is you're going to feel like you have a cold. And, you know, when you have a cold, things improve every day. You get better and better and better. But with this case, with radiation, every day you're going to get worse. You're going to oh. feel worse. Oh. So, so I, you know, and I, I, didn't, I didn't feel bad at all. First three weeks, I felt great. But he said, you know, watch what you eat because we don't know how it's going to impact you. Some people, some men go through this and have urinary issues. Some of them have bowel 
issues. Some of them have diet issues. And sure enough, uh, about three weeks into this, I, I had a salad for lunch, and I went to the washroom probably 17 times that day. Oh, I'm sorry. And, and after that, I couldn't hold anything down. So they put me on a, one of those really stoic diets where you can eat bananas and rice and bread, you know, and it was something just to bind you up. Right. And it worked, but, it, you know, right after that, I, I was done right before Thanksgiving. I was really looking forward to my wife. My wife is a great cook, and, and I was looking forward to a Thanksgiving dinner. And sure enough, I ate my Thanksgiving dinner, and, and, and it didn't last very long. So oh. I, had to, I had to keep on uh, – I had to maintain a, a very um, sensible, very restricted diet for a couple of weeks afterwards. But I recovered. Right. Wow. But so so what happened is and then I had a series of other things. I had problems uh, getting an erection. And uh, that one there's in the book, I describe what actually happened during the operation. And then uh, what what ultimately happened is I had to I had to inject myself with shots in order to uh, maintain any kind of kind of sexual uh, uh, sexual ability. And, uh, Where, and are I you okay about, with that? I mean, well, do you get used to that? Well, you, you get used to it, but it's in, you know you're you're inserting a a, a a needle into your penis, which is is painful. You know, I mean, and a lot of men. My my urologist told me a lot of men they just don't do it because they just say there's no way I'm doing this. So right. you, can, you know, it's something that you probably never get used to, but you know, in order to to have enjoy a you know, your wife and have a sexual uh, experience, you, uh, this is what you have to do. Yeah. So, so to be honest with you now, so that worked for 20 years and, uh, and that's how I ended the book. I ended the book saying, you know, so I'm, I'm healthy now. All my prostate, all my cancer is gone. Uh, all my, I, I talk about my, the prostate removal, uh, what I went through, the surgery, how the recovery was. I talk about my seven weeks of radiation and then I talk about uh, these other issues that are impacting me also. But I, I ended the book then, and, and I, uh, as soon as I, I was identified with the cancer back in 2003, I went to my local library and I went to the local bookstore to find out some information about it because I had never heard of prostate cancer. You know, it's not something that women, women have a great social network, and they, they talk about breast cancer all the time and do a fabulous job at, at doing that while men are somewhat either they're embarrassed or they don't want to talk about it. And so as a result, I found very few books, if any, in the library or the local Barnes and Noble about prostate cancer. And so I decided, you know, if I survive this, I'm going to write a book. So um, I kept all my files, everything that I had from all of the, my experiences and all my doctor visits uh, but, you know, I still was working and I have two children and they got married and I have grandchildren. So mm -hmm. th there never seemed to be an opportunity to do this. And then I retired and, and lo and behold, soon after I retired, COVID uh, hit us. And I said, you know, I'm stuck in the house. I've got this big pile of uh, papers that I've gonna, I'm going to put through. And, and that's when I wrote the book. So it, I wrote the book about 17 years after I had the prostate cancer initially. Were you really that surprised? I mean, men don't talk, period. Right, right. You know what I mean? I Unless you're like, it's your best friend from the time you were three. I feel like men just, I don't know, they just don't talk about much. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, we talk about other things. You talk about sports, you talk about the weather, and you, you know, talk about you know, cars and, and uh, 
you know, maybe your kids and stuff like that. But you, you don't you don't talk about issues that impact you, which it's kind of a shame because, uh, you know, I think it's it's good to talk about things. In fact, now I'm going to a, 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 a cancer wellness uh, workshop uh, once a month and uh, it's specifically talking about prostate cancer. And there's probably about 15 guys that show up every month, some of them with their wives, some of them all alone. And, and they, they, you know, they're worried about prostate cancer. How is it going to impact them? So uh, the, one of the doctors that runs this operation allows me to, to sit in on these meetings. And, and, uh, and every once in a while, he refers to me during the presentation. But, uh, it would, you know, it's still something that men still don't talk about even now. Can you bring copies of your book? Yeah, I, I have brought copies of the book. I gave I gave the book to the doctor that I that he's there, and he, he liked it a lot. And uh, um, I everybody I talked to, you know, there wants a copy of my book, so I refer them online, and they can purchase the book online. Um, but it's you know it's it's just a uh, it was it's a uh, it's um, when it impacts you, you never think it's going to impact you, and then all of a sudden it impacts you. So now you have to make a decision of what you want to do. And, and yeah. they have they have clearly improved a lot of things between when I had first identified with prostate diagnosed with prostate cancer, but until now, improvements in in, in everything has been dramatic. But you know, it still impacts. There's about 350,000 people that die from uh, prostate cancer every year, and wow. and it's the second leading cause of death in men, and it's the fifth leading cause of cancer for people in the in the world. And there's about 1.2 million people every year are diagnosed with 1.2 million men are diagnosed okay. with cancer every year, and that's about a man every two and a half minutes. One man gets diagnosed with prostate cancer worldwide every two and a half minutes. Oh, okay. Because I, I mean, it, it's always been my understanding that it's one of the most curable cancers. Yes. Definitely. So if you identify it quickly, like I, like with me, and I've, I, I, you know, it reoccurred with me, and I went in for the radiation, and now I've been cancer free for you know 17, 18 years. So so yes, wow. it's it's very curable. I'm 70 years old. This happened when I was 51. So it's been a while now, and everything has been fine. And then knock on wood. So I, I, I it is very curable, but you have to identify it. A lot of men don't do annual physicals. A lot of men, you know, if they don't have a history of it in their family, they they don't take a PSA test, which costs more to do. Uh, and so they opt opt out of taking a PSA. But it is uh, it is due to hereditary. And ultimately, I found out my dad did get uh, prostate cancer, and he that's what he ultimately died from. Uh, oh my gosh! So, and you didn't know that? I didn't know that because I was identified with it before him. So, so, oh. so he did get it, and he, my PSA when I had my prostate removed was 8.0, his was 200. So it's huge. What? Yeah, and 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 uh, and it's it, once once it gets bad, it spreads, you know, through the rest of your body, and that's what happened to right. him. Spread into his bones, so it hit it hit his pelvis, it hit his his thigh bones, and it, it and, and he could hardly walk when he when he ultimately mm. died. So. Uh, you know, because it was identified in him so late in life that right. uh, the, to do to do the the prostate removal would have been just as bad as uh, you know it would have been bad surgery. It's it's you know anytime you operate it's bad, and recovery takes a long time. So it's not something that's pleasant. But uh, yes, you're absolutely right that it is very treatable and it is very uh, it's something that can be rectified. So uh, whenever I read you know. 
my wife just uh, she was talking to me yesterday. This one of the one of the judges on Dancing with the Stars. His name is Len Goodman, that old guy. You know, he 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 was a uh, diagnosed with prostate cancer and ultimately died from bone cancer. But I'm sure right. the prostate cancer he didn't address it probably, and it spread into his bones, and that's what happened. Right. So uh, it's a terrible death, and and you know it's something that is avoidable and treatable. So. Good. Well, good work. I'm glad you wrote this book. The problem is it's a very targeted audience. You know, yeah. people, my, my, my sons who are in, the, in their late 30s and 40s, they're looking at me as, I don't want to read your book. And so most people that are, most men, I would say, that are, you know, in the ages of 25 to 45, they don't care about right. it. But all of a sudden when you're 50 and, and it hits you, then you start thinking about it. And it's not only the men that are targeted for that, it's their spouses and their, their girlfriends and significant others. Well, yeah, because sure. my, and my wife was really uh, my my rock through this whole thing. She she you know held my hand and 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 kept on and get kept on telling me you're going to be this is going to be successful. You're going to be fine. So I mean she she you know took the brunt of it a lot, and I'm sure a lot of these wives and significant others do because the men are just you know the men are just internalizing everything and they don't express themselves and it's it's, it's something that uh, needs to be done. You know, you're so afraid of being, you're so afraid of being perceived as weak, I think. Yeah, you know? that, that, that's, uh, I, 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 I agree with you wholeheartedly. Yeah. You're so afraid of showing any chink in your armor. You don't want to be portrayed as, or uh, being laughed at for being weak. And that's something that's a shame that, you know, we grow up with that. It, it, it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. But that's why I admire women so much. I mean, I look at at women with breast cancer. There's, you know, especially 20, even 20 years ago, there was 20 books on the shelf about a, a woman experiencing breast cancer and talking to, you know, what she went through and how this impacted her life and how she's working at, through this and, and her mother. And I mean, it did really, I admired all the things that they did. And I said, look at all these women, how great they are to come out with this publicly and say, this is how it impacted me. So, and, and, and then I, you know, I looked at it and I said, am I the only person who has this? No. And then when I found out, found out all these other people had it, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to write something about it because this is, this is a shame that there isn't more of it. Well, good for you. Keep, keep talking about it. And you know, you, you could help a lot of people with this book. Well, that's, that's, that's my intent is if I can help, you know, a handful, 10, 20, 30 people, everybody who, anybody who reads the book, you know, get, uh, get through this process and through the journey. And if they, they know, oh, this is going to hurt, this isn't going to hurt. This is what, these are my options that I have to talk about with my doctor. You know, I just, I just think if I can, if I can help some people through that, uh, it's going to be better off for them. You, you got that right. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. Well, I appreciate it also. Journal of a Poet, Roses and Ribbons is the name of our next book by Jennifer L. Perkins. She's been writing since she was a little girl. And you're creative all around, right? Yeah, and I do some art. I do a little bit of painting. Nothing, yeah, nothing too over the top, but, you know, I'm trying to work on it. so. So what inspired your book? I began writing it in high school. So what I did was I kind of looked into other people's experiences for the most part. Like one is called breaking up. It's hard to do. Um, 
I was not allowed to date, as mentioned on the back of the book. So I was kind of looking through other people's perspective of life, and I put it into my own perspective of how I would feel in that certain situation if I was dating that person or in a situation of that nature. And then other things inspired me was nature. Like I wrote about the trees um, and just different things, my family. So it's like a genre of everything I was going through and experiencing at the time. Was high school a while ago or are you a recently graduated? No, it was a while ago. <laughs> oh, okay. But you started writing in high school. Yes. And then one day you woke up and said, I'm going to publish a book just like that? Yeah. Like I wrote it in high school. And I think back then I, I was intending to make it into a book back then, but I I found it a few years ago and I was just like, well, I'm going to go ahead and publish this now. You know, why not do it? You know? Is, is it just poems like one page after another page of poems or do you share you know your life experience through the book yes it's life experiences and predominantly poetry but there's other things in there like excerpts excerpts from church you know things of that nature um like there's an entry of the bible lesson that we learned that day you know and different things like that short stories you know can you give me an example? Is there a poem you'd like to read? Uh, let's see. Well, this one is on page 30. It's called With God, I Can Go On. And I was really a uh, church girl, you know. Back then, I, church was every day. You had to go. You know, you were kicking and screaming. You had to go. <laughs> every day? <laughs> yes. Why did you have to go every day? Is that a certain religion? Um, it, We were... Baptists were Baptists. Um, oh, oh, yeah. wow! So they would have prayer meeting, Bible study, you know, choir rehearsal. You know, it was always something youth rehearsal. So, wow. Okay. Yeah. Where so, did you grow? Where did you grow up? Um, Saint Augustine, Florida. Oh, so you grew up in Saint Augustine? Yes. That is a beautiful place. Yes, it's wonderful. I I love it. The atmosphere is so beautiful. Wow. So you are you are a real Floridian. Yes. <laughs> uh, all right. So going to church every day. I don't know if I would have, I don't know how I would have done with that, Jennifer. I give you credit for that. Well, honestly, I love it. I do love God. This one is with God. I can go on. Okay. I can go on for I am strong. The Lord leads me and directs me from wrong. When I am inhibited in darkness, the Lord is my gracious light. He tells me to never give up without putting up a wondrous sight. As long as I believe continuously to revitalize my faith, God said he would help me to run this profound race. Let your innocence wrap around me. Take anything, Lord, that shouldn't be. The Lord knows the way of death and the way of life. God, I know you will empower me when I struggle with strife. God, you have all the power in your hands. Nothing could ever amount to you that has been created by man. Children, adults, surrender to God before it's too late. When the gospel train comes, it will not wait. Don't live for tomorrow. Live for today. God will surely bless us, for he will always make a way. Forgive me, Lord, for all my sins and all I have done. Thank you, Lord. I have the victory, and it has been won. And with his love and blessings he brings, with the Heavenly Father by my side, I can do all things. That's awesome, Jennifer. That's how, you know what? This sounds like it could be a song. Yes. <laughs> oh, and there are a few songs in here that I wrote. <laughs>
Now, do you, do you put them to music? Um, sometimes I do. One, I put to music, but I didn't put it in the book, though. But, um, yeah, some I put to music. I do. All right. But, so, but not me, from this book, though. <laughs> uh, okay. Give me an example of one of your excerpts. Here's one that I found, uh, A Lonely Walk in Georgia. Okay. I went for a walk in the park, alone past midnight, way after dark. All that was on my mind were memories of you and all the good times. I started to cry, but my hands held them inside. I had to be alone just for the sake of my pride. Someone may be gone. A bad memory makes good times fade. However, everything you were will never be put in the shade. Nice. Now, now, do you explain what inspired that poem? Yes. Um, my granddad... My granddad um, on my mom's side, he was from Georgia, so he passed away. So it's kind of, you know, like in memory of him. Um, his name was John Green Sr. And I mean, I really didn't get a chance to really get to know him. My yeah. only memory of him is like coming to the house to have like a Thanksgiving dinner. And um, when he got sick, I kind of saw him more. He was in, in and out of the hospital and things of that nature. But yeah, that's just kind of in remembrance of him. Do you write poetry for people on their birthdays and special occasions and stuff like that? Yes, I have done that. Um, not too often, but once in a while. Yeah. What happens now? Well, I'm just trying to get the word out there the best I can. Social media. How's that working out for you? It seems like it's going pretty well. Like, I really got a lot of my family members and friends involved, like, sharing the word. Spread the word for me, you know. And yeah. Do you share excerpts of your book? Um, yeah, sometimes I do. On, on Facebook, I do. Are, are there places where you can read your poetry in St. Augustine? Um, there, there were a lot of places back in the day. Um, like, around 2002, I was doing a lot of shows and events then. And, you know, prior to that, but now it's kind of dimmed down a little bit. You have to go to other cities like Jacksonville and, you know, other places now. But you do get to read your stuff out loud? Yes, yes. That's great. That's really great. Now, I, I understand it took you a while to get this book together, right? You've been working on this for a long time. Yeah, I have. So it's it had to feel so good when you got that book in the mail. Oh, yes. Oh, you won't believe this, but I was crying for two hours. <laughs> really? Yes, I cried for two hours straight, and I was, like, praying and thanking God. I was like, oh, my God. It's finally That's... <laughs> Oh, good for you, Jennifer. Well, you, you going to keep writing? Yes, definitely. Definitely, I want to keep writing. I enjoy it. I've been writing poetry since I was seven, and I just fell in love with it once I heard about Shakespeare and, like, Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston. When I heard about them and Maya Angelou, oh, I, oh. I just had to start writing poetry. I was like, oh, my God, this is wonderful. What is Langston use? That is that the one, hold fast to your dreams, for if dreams die, life is a broken-winged bird that cannot fly. I think that's Langston Hughes. He was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> amazing poet. Yeah. Yeah, I always, whenever I, I talk to poets, because I know poetry books, there's a lot of them, and it's hard, it's hard to sell poetry books. But I always think, man, maybe she could, maybe she should do a calendar. Or maybe, you know, <laughs> or maybe you should do, like, my when I was little, my mom had, like, 
all of these spiritual sayings, like every day you just flip the thing. I mean, nobody does that anymore because we all have electronic devices. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but you know, someplace where you could put your sayings so that people can see them all the time and they can inspire you, you know, and every day flip the page. That's the know. thing too. It has spirituality in it and it has like just things about life in there, about relationships. It, it, it goes all over the map, you know? Yeah. My demographic something for everybody. Yeah, my demographic is something for everybody. Yep. <laughs> there you go. Well, Jennifer, it was nice talking to you. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. A San Diego CPA, Frank P. Skinner, has long been interested in history and politics. Put that together with his wacky sense of humor, and we have, setting the record straight, a complete history of the alternate states of America. Now, I have to ask you, why do you spell complete C-O-M-P-L-E-A-T? Yeah, um, there was a documentary many years ago, which is now out of print, about the Beatles called The Complete Beatles. And complete was spelled that way. You know, it's sort of a takeoff on the Beatles name with this oddball spelling. <laughs> and I'm a huge Beatles fan, so there you go. Okay, so where are we going with this? It tells the story of our country's history from the time that Christopher Columbus set sail right up to and beyond our time in the 21st century. So what's the deal with this history book? Well, basically, I wanted to poke a little fun at, um, at the quote-unquote great men of history. Um, you know, sort of bring them down to earth a little bit, you know, we sort of hero worship our presidents. You know, everybody either hates their guts or, you know, thinks they're the second coming of Jesus. And I just sort of wanted to bring them down to earth a little bit, you know, with using humor. Okay. So give me an example. Oh, um, George Washington, for example. When I was a kid, I noticed that um, if you fold a dollar bill a certain way, it makes Washington look like a, a, a mushroom. So I came up with the idea of having him being born with this birth defect where his head is a mushroom. <laughs> so every president in history has their own chapter? Yes. So what'd you do with Bill Clinton? Oh boy, I had a lot of fun with that one. I bet you did. Yeah, you know, you know, with him, the material sort of writes itself. <laughs> you know, I poked fun at his bimbo eruptions. I had um, I have an illustration in there where it has him posing with a couple of them being um, aliens from outer space. His bimbo eruptions were really aliens from outer space? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm implying that some of them were. <laughs> I've always been interested in science fiction as well. You know, I read it a lot, especially when I was a kid. So I decided to make some of the historical figures extraterrestrials. Oh, who, who else is an extraterrestrial? Oh, Benjamin Franklin. He's an extraterrestrial. That's, uh, that's why the, the, whole, the whole kite thing, that's why he didn't get killed. Well, yeah, that's right. And, and that also <laughs> explains his being such a ladies' man. I, I don't know how that happened, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. Oh, I'm, I'm Barbara Bush. Barbara, so you, it's not just the presidents you deal with. Oh, oh, well, yeah, you know, I deal with a lot of the figures of history. Okay. How about Christopher Columbus? How do you deal with him? Oh, I have an illustration in the book where I, I had the artist um, draw him to look like Bill Clinton and Queen Isabella to look like Monica Lewinsky. Oh, no. <laughs> you think people will get that? Oh, I, th I think so. Yeah. You call FDR a fascist. Um, yeah, that's sort of a takeoff. You know, I have very strong opinions of, um, of various presidents and what they do. And, you know, I've, I've read books about, you know, about lots of different presidents. <clears throat> and when you look at the New Deal, 
there really is a lot of fascism in it. It was a, basically a partnership of the federal government and the big corporations, you know, coming coming together to, um, you know, to basically run the country. It's hard to explain. You know, he sort of, you know, he sort of took over the took over the economy and had the federal government running it in com in combination with Wall Street, which is basically what's happening today. Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. You know, when you when you look at what's happening today, you know, the federal government's in bed with the with Wall Street. And the middle class is paying the price. And the middle class gets smaller and smaller. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, back in FDR's day, it was um, at the expense of small businesses. Mm. You know, it was FDR colluding with the, with the big, powerful corporations and sort of crowding out the little guy. Hmm. What I love is the Republicraps and the Democraps. That oh, is yeah. never been truer, right, than it is right now? Oh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, th I think that says it all. I mean, do you spoof any of the uh, issues of the day? Oh, I do. There's going to be a total of three volumes. So you're just releasing volume one. Right. All right. So I, I have to ask you, this does not include President Trump and bite me. Right. What do you mean by that? <laughs> there's sort of when you get to the end of volume three, there's sort of a shocking ending. OK. And I don't want to give it away. But, you know, they, 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 they are talked about in the book. Okay, but just in a different way. And you mentioned bite me. I give I give alternate names to each of the fifty states, and to some of the historical characters as well, where their name lends itself to um to um being a pun. Bite me. I like that. That's Biden, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Another example is um Rutherford B Hayes. Uh -huh. Um, I refer to him as R Rutherford B Hayes, <laughs> which is actually his historically how um how the um the Democrats referred to him back then because of the alleged um, stealing of the 1876 presidential election. Yeah, people don't realize like the, the, the accusations of stealing elections have been around a long time. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, 1876 was, was you know, um, I consider it to be a stolen election. The Republicans stole it from the Democrats. Right. And in 1960, the Democrats stole it back. So there you go. There you go. We try to even it out, right? That's what America yeah. does. God bless us. Yep, and that, and, you know, that's what I tried to be even-handed. I, I poked fun at everybody. You know, I didn't I didn't play favorites in the book. Yeah. So you were going to talk about Barbara Bush. She was pretty she was pretty popular, right? For the wife of a president. Um, she was. Yeah. You know, she's not my favorite person, to be honest. Um, you know, that little dust up she had with um, Sarah Palin a few years ago, you know, didn't it didn't impress me. OK. Is that in the book? Um, yep. Oh, but that, that's in that's in volume three. How about Eleanor Roosevelt? Well, vol volume one takes us up to just before the, the Great War. Okay. Which basically takes us through the administration of William Howard Taft. Okay. This is a great, great way, a funny, fun way to kind of learn, right? Oh, I, th I think so. Yeah. Anybody who's interested in history or politics and anybody who has a, you know, a wacky sense of humor, I certainly have one. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping a lot of people out there do. You know, everybody takes everything so seriously these days, you know. You say the wrong thing and you get canceled. You know, what's with that? Yeah. You know, comedians can't tell jokes anymore. But they because do. Because they might offend somebody. Yes. Oh, they do. But, you know, um, they, they've lost their edge because everybody's so afraid of offending somebody. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it is a, it's definitely a problem. I'm in a parody group, right? And we, we uh -huh. lampoon politicians. And there's this one scene that we did and... You know, we have a mayor that goes to this particular restaurant in Midtown run by two Russian guys. 
And the guys playing the Russian guys in the musical number were not allowed to have Russian accents. Oh, okay. And I'm like, uh, I just feel like that's going too far. Oh, yeah. You know, um, you know, people lose their whole career over something they said 20 years ago. You know, they told they told the wrong joke that offends somebody 20 years ago. And yeah. All of a sudden they're out of a job. Right. Or they made fun of a particular group when they were young and stupid and yeah. it pops up on Twitter 20 years later and they got to pay for it. I know. You deal with woke at all? <laughs> oh, well, not really. You know, I've, I've, I've substantially completed the book before the before the concept of woke really hit the mainstream. Right. You know, I, right. I refer to political correctness, which I guess was the predecessor to that. Right. And And how do you refer to that? Oh, you know, I basically poke fun at it like I do everything else. You know, these people taking themselves so seriously. What kind of reaction are you getting? Oh, um, well, you know, so far I've shown it to people I know. So it's hard to get in. You know, when somebody's your friend, it's hard to really say if they're just, um, you know, they're just being nice or if they really like what they're reading. But I've, you know, I've had a pretty good reaction so far. You know, I've been telling all my clients about it and some of them have bought copies from me directly. I'm not really doing any any book signings or readings. Um, yeah, to, to be honest, I have a lung condition that makes it hard for me health-wise oh. to, um, to, you know, go out and give speeches or, or to do anything too strenuous. Right. So that's, unfortunately, that's sort of off the table. Well, I mean, there's always social media too. Do you have any, do, are you involved in that at all? Um, not really. I, um, I signed up for Facebook one time and I took one look at it and I thought I could really, you know, I could get sucked up in this and just spend hours at it. So, you know, it's something I try to avoid. I always tell people to start where they are. Uh-huh. You know, you, you you start with the local book club. Every church has one, I swear. Mm-hmm. At least that's what people tell me. And as far as social media, everybody knows somebody who could do social media better than you can. Uh-huh. If you just posted excerpts of some of your stuff mm-hmm. on Instagram or Facebook, I bet you, because it's funny. You got a lot of funny stuff here. You know, that's, that's an, I hadn't even thought of that. that that's... Just put, put these little anecdotes out there, and we need some humor in our politics right now, don't oh, you think? We, cer- we certainly do, but the problem is you, you say something to offend somebody, and like I say, it's a vicious cycle. Yeah, or you, you get a group of people following you who are sick of that whole thing and aren't mm-hmm. offended, you know? Yeah. There's a lot or of people may- who think it just it's gone too far. You know, or maybe, or maybe I, maybe I just moved to Florida, where, where woke has gone to die. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's where woke has gone to die. At least that's what they tell me. I don't know. <laughs> well, that's what the governor said in his um, victory speech last year. <laughs> I know. <laughs> what are we gonna do? It's got to get better, right? Oh yeah, we do. You know, things go in cycles. You know, um, I think people are starting to to um, push back a little bit on this, and I think that's a good sign. You know, I guess I guess the whole woke thing. Like even some people on the left are saying it's gone too far. Well, that's when you know it's gone too far. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, but I don't you think both sides have gone too far? Um, I think so, but it's, it seems like the left, you know, has less tolerance. You know, it's, it's, it's um, those on the left who are trying to cancel everybody. Yeah, you don't know how to act anymore. Yeah. All right, well, you got three volumes. You got the first one out there. Yep. Are the other two finished? Um, they're substantially done. Um, and I hope to have volume two out later this year or, you know, at, at the latest, um, early next year. Yeah. And then volume three after that. All right. All right. You know, who else might enjoy this is, is high school kids studying history. Yeah. 
this might get them, you know, if they're on the fence about it, they read this. They might be oh, interested, that's right? That's an idea. <laughs> right? They might be even more interested in finding out, oh, there's another way to look at American history. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Listen, I enjoyed talking to you. Oh, same here. And thank you so much, Frank. Oh, thank you. You have a great day. Oh, you do. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton Rossini. Hope to see you back here every Saturday night at 8 p.m. or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Podserve just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first.